right, well, hello, everybody. Uh, I don't know about you guys, I get excited about new books, so go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand in the air, and it looks like Tim will bring one to you, or maybe Dan over there, uh, so that you can follow along with us and just hold that hand up until a Bible arrives, right? Uh, but anyway, 1 Corinthians, for me, a new book. Sometimes I get so excited about the new book, I can't wait to get out of the old book, and so the last couple weeks, oftentimes, of a book get kind of tough for me, uh, but in this case... Uh, just a great book when we get into 1 Corinthians. Let me just uh, give you just a very brief rundown of the book's structure. Um, it really divides kind of nicely into two general parts. The first six chapters of this letter uh, really focus in on some bad reports that the Apostle Paul has received about that church there. The second half of the book, starting in chapter 7, uh, Paul seems to be answering questions that they have specifically asked him. And so uh, he kind of has two different things going on there. One, some people have said some bad things about the church. He wants to correct those things. But he's also received a letter from them that really does lay out very specific questions. And uh, kind of a neat setup for us as we go through this book. Um, as we look at this particular chapter, let me give you a quick roadmap here. Uh, this will break down like most of Paul's letter. It'll start out where he uh, introduces himself and who the letter is to. He'll then uh, have a prayer of thanksgiving for the church, the people of that church, followed by then getting into the details of the passage. And that first bad report that we're going to see tonight uh, is that there were divisions in the church in Corinth. And really, he's going to spend uh, about four chapters dealing with that idea. And it'll come up at different times later on in the book, just kind of in brief form where he goes back to this idea of some uh, divisions that they have there, some quarrels that they have among themselves. And so he's going to answer those divisions in three ways. Uh, the first is just to ask the question, has Christ been crucified or has Christ been divided so that they would recognize that uh, there's no division in the body of Christ, which means there should be no division in the church. He's then going to look at the foolishness of the gospel and he says, just in that, it proves the power of the gospel. What he's really trying to do is, is bring Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ, as that main rallying point for them as a church, that whenever they have divisions, they just go back to that and focus in on that important thing. And then lastly, he's even going to talk about the weakness of those who were chosen, uh, and they will help ensure that no one will boast. And so that's the way this plays out. Uh, but again, I don't like to spend a lot of time on the introduction, so let's just get into the passage here. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just a, again, a traditional opening to a letter from the Apostle Paul, and that's what this is. He's writing a letter to a specific church. Um, he introduces himself. You'll also see he's going to introduce a guy by the name of Sosthenes. Uh, Sosthenes is likely the one who's taking the words of Paul and writing them down for him. The belief is that Paul had some struggles with his eyes, and it was difficult for him to write because of that. And likely, I mean, the guy, every time he entered into a town, they would just beat the snot out of him. And so probably his bones ached, probably it was hard for him to write, likely it is starting to get arthritis and all that stuff. But anyway, he had these guys that at different times would kind of help him along in ministry. Sosthenes is one of them. Uh, we actually meet him in Acts chapter 18. Uh, in Acts chapter 18, uh, that tells about the 18 months that Paul spent in Corinth. Paul's the one that actually founded the church of Corinth. He was only there for 18 months, but he founded the church before he went on to do ministry in other places. Um, what Paul's standard was, he would come into a town 
and he would go first to the Jewish synagogues and he would preach the gospel in the Jewish synagogues. What would be the outcome of that is that some of those Jews would then recognize that Jesus was the Messiah and that would cause some difficulties in those synagogues because now you have a group of people who believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and you have some people who don't believe. So they would usually then kick Paul outside of the church and he would go to the Gentiles. And then as he preached to the Gentiles, that would usually get the city in an uproar and that's when Paul would get beat up, arrested, chased out of town and he would go start a church in a new town. Now that was just kind of his standard. What's interesting about Sosthenes though is he was actually one of the leaders of one of the synagogues there in Corinth and when this whole disruption happened because Paul brought the gospel there uh, there was again a riot around the apostle Paul the leaders of the town said we don't care about any of this stuff and so they weren't going to do anything about it so the Jews took it into their own hands and they decided that they were most angry at the leaders of the synagogues who allowed Paul to preach in the first place so they beat up not Paul but Sosthenes this poor guy took Paul's beating in this particular case but he maintained uh, fellowship with Paul and began ministering with him at some point. Uh, now here as we get to the church of Corinth, this is a couple of years after this when Paul is writing this letter, three to four years potentially after this event has happened where Paul is now actually writing back to them uh, again because he heard some bad reports. What's uh, important to note next is that this city of Corinth uh, itself um, is a little bit of a, a modern city at least by the perspective of the time then. Uh, it has a lot of similarities with the United States of America today, to be honest with you. Uh, it was a place that was uh, pretty rich. It was a place where the people were uh, in, engulfed in the pursuit of not only financial gain, but also of physical pleasures. They used entertainment. The promiscuity was pretty high within that culture there. Uh, beyond that, though, they had a, a lot of uh, false gods, idolatry that, were go that was going on within the city. So you have all of this stuff kind of going on in this city of Corinth. Um, now, when Paul writes these letters, what, what I love about the way he writes them, he makes it clear it's from Paul, but he says, I'm called as an apostle. Apostle is one who is sent out in somebody else's name. Well, what he is, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing, but he's writing as an ambassador or somebody who is sent out by Jesus. So he's not just writing his thoughts here. He's writing uh, in, um, in, in representation of Jesus Christ. And then to take that even further in verse 3, you see the way he does this. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's helping them know as a church, this isn't just my thoughts. This is from this letter. Receive it as if it's from God the Father. Now we know doctrinally how that works out, but at the time that might have been a little bit uh, difficult for them to really wrap their minds around. But here's Paul saying, I'm speaking on behalf of God. Now, doctrinally, what we believe that when Paul wrote this, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, right? So we believe that the Holy Spirit actually inspired Paul to write these very words down. And then we can see how it's been uh, protected throughout history so that it wasn't just to the church at Corinth. It was brought all the way down to us as a church today. So it wasn't just intended for one church. It was intended for all churches at all time to get a glimpse into the ministry of the early church, some of the struggles they had, and the principles that were used in order to overcome those struggles. Well, Paul then picks it up here in verse 4 for us, uh, where he begins his traditional uh, prayer of thanksgiving for the church that he's writing to. He says this in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. 
that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul lets them first know that he's been praying for them. And I, I, just, I just always love the way Paul this. I thank my God always concerning you. It's not just an occasional prayer. He really does pray for them. Uh, this is, I think, something that's important for us to just grasp on just a very practical level. I think sometimes we tell people, hey, I've been praying for you, bro, but we haven't really been praying for them. So what Paul has going seems to be this kind of two-handed thing where he's actually not just praying for them, but he's also telling them that he's praying for them. Those two things going hand in hand. Sometimes we never tell people we pray for them when we do pray for them. I've gotten the habit personally when somebody says, hey, Pastor Sean, I've got this stuff going on in my life. Will you pray for me? Well, I used to say, yeah, I would definitely pray for that. And then the week would happen and I would forget to pray for that. So what I do now is right there, I don't care if I'm at Walmart, I don't care if I'm here at church, I don't care where I'm at, right wherever we are, when they tell me, would you pray for this? I stop right then. I'm like, yeah, let's pray for this. I pray for them right in that moment. But there's power in the prayer, right? We recognize that whether they know Paul's praying for them or not, God's working on their behalf. But there's encouragement in knowing that somebody else is praying for you. There's real encouragement in that. And I don't know if you've ever had those things happen in your life, but I certainly have when people come alongside me and say, hey, Pastor Sean, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. I'm praying for the church. I'm instantly built up and encouraged by that. Instantly, it encourages me. And that's what Paul's doing for this church. He's encouraging them as well. And so he makes kind of a list of things he's thankful for. He's thankful that they've received the grace of God. Uh, He's thankful that they've been enriched in the knowledge of God. He's thankful that Christ has confirmed his testimony in that particular church. He's just kind of reaffirming their faith. Uh, I love this next one. Uh, You're not lacking in any gift. Uh, They had spiritual gifts abounding in this particular church. Uh, What is interesting about some of the things he's doing, though, uh, you see it here. You'll see it in another one of these prayers. He's really kind of uh, foreshadowing some things he's going to talk about later. Uh, This church did have a lot of spiritual gifts, but it was one of the things that they got all caught up on that they were having questions about, that some people were like, well, this spiritual gift is better than this spiritual gift, and I don't even know why we have that spiritual gift. And if you don't have this one, you're probably not saved. They were just kind of arguing over the spiritual gifts. Paul says, hey, I'm, I'm so thankful you're not lacking in spiritual gifts that you have so many spiritual gifts that you have time to argue about them. Later, though, he's going to kind of correct their thinking on spiritual gifts. So you can see how he's just kind of layering this. Uh, the other thing that he's going to be layering in there is this idea uh, that... Um, there is a fellowship with believers. You saw it there in uh, verse 2 where he saw, says that they are saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here in verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship. It's just this, this picture of this, this oneness that he wants to have, this unity that he wants to see in the church. Again, centered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that just moves right into what is the first problem for this church here in verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I um, am of Christ. And so you can see that they're having these divisions within the church. So Paul starts out by saying, I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to be of the same judgment. I want you guys to all be on the same page. But here's the problem. Chloe's people are telling me that you have divisions in your church. I love how he names Chloe's people by name here. He doesn't just kind of leave it out there. Well, I, you know, I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend. This isn't like this is just following that grapevine of gossip. Uh, This is a situation where he's kind of putting the responsibility back on Chloe's people. And I think that really points back to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is pretty clear in Matthew chapter 18 how to handle when you feel like there's somebody who sinned against you. You first go to that person in a a one-on-one fashion. And I think what Paul's doing by making mention of this is Chloe's people, he's putting this church in a situation where Chloe now has to deal with the words she said about that church. And now this has actually happened to me oftentimes as a pastor. It comes, people will come to me and say, well, Pastor Sean, I just need to let you know, so-and-so at your church is just, they're really struggling with this right now. They're really having problems in this area right now. And I really think you should talk to them about it. But don't mention me. Don't let them know I'm the one that told you. I just, I'm just trying to help as if the Holy Spirit didn't already have the ability, right, to help in these things, that they're, they're moving into the territory of being the Holy Spirit, the helper here. Well, that puts me in this awkward situation where I say something to the person like, hey, I heard you have this going on in their life, and they're like, who told you that? Well, I mean, you know, they really didn't want me to say. All of a sudden, the issue is not what's going on in their life. The issue is, who's talking about me? So Paul just puts it right back on Chloe and Chloe's people. Can you imagine Chloe? Sunday morning, the pastor says, hey, we got a letter from the Apostle Paul. And she's like, oh, this is exciting. I was just talking to him. And then he mentions her by name in the letter. Chloe's people said, you guys have divisions in your church and you're fighting. Chloe probably about that small in that moment. She's head down like, oh my goodness. Could you have used a little bit more tact, Paul? But I think that's powerful. It puts it in this place where it's now out in the open. It has to be dealt with. He's really putting it back on her. Uh, I think the more appropriate fashion would be that Chloe would have first tried to, to, to deal with this internally. And we don't know, maybe she did. And if that's the case, then, then this is no big deal. Everybody already knows Chloe is worried about the divisions and the quarrels that are going on within the church. But I just love how he does that. He, just, he mentions her by name. He makes it very clear where this information came from so that it can be dealt with. And it is important that it be dealt with. Jesus says a kingdom divided against itself will fall. There's real danger and division within the church, within the greater body of Christ. And these things should be dealt with. And so he's going to deal with these quarrels. And he's going to tell us really what the first quarrel that they're having in the church, the first division that they're having in the church is. And it deals with the personalities of those who are in ministry. uh, Determining or, or dividing the church up based on which person, which missionary, which pastor, which speaker in the church uh, is most important to you. And so they kind of were beginning to form teams in the church. And so you could imagine on any given Sunday that there would be Team Paul, and then there would be Team Apollos, and there would be Team Cephas, and then of course there's Team Christ, which by the way, that's the right team. Paul doesn't go into great detail that right here, but he's going to make the point, that's the right answer. We're all on Team Christ. But you see what's happening in that church. They kind of are surrounding themselves 
with people who had the same minister or had the same experience. Uh, And you can see how it would happen naturally. Uh, I am of Paul. Well, think about this. The church was founded by the apostle Paul. Paul's not there anymore. Some of those people could say, man, I'm part of the, uh, the, the original Christians in this town. I'm telling you, I heard the gospel from the apostle Paul himself. Well, now those other people are like, well, I didn't hear it from Paul, but I heard it from a guy by the name of Apollos. Now, here's what we know about Apollos in Scripture. This is actually kind of cool. God, inspiring the writing of, the, of, of Luke in the book of Acts, says of Apollos that he was eloquent in speech. Well, Paul might have been the first one, but Apollos really knew how to preach, man. I heard the gospel from Apollos, eloquent in speech. And then, of course, there were those Jews who came to Christ, and they said, that's, that's fine. You heard it from Paul. You heard it from Apollos. I heard it from Cephas, the apostle Peter himself, a Jewish man like me who lived with Jesus for three years. That's my pastor. So they start to form teams within this church around these kind of guys and these personalities. Now, a certain part of that is okay. Uh, It's fine if you have multiple pastors. If there's just one pastor that you have more of a connection with, uh, that makes sense. So you have something going on in your life and you think to yourself, well, I want to talk to a pastor about this. And you might think, well, I I talk to Pastor Tom every Sunday. I'll just talk to him about this. There's just a comfort level. There's nothing wrong with that until it causes division in the church. That's when you start to have an issue. Could you imagine if we came in here on Sunday morning and people kind of started divvying themselves up? sitting only with the people that Tom's really our pastor, and they all kind of sit together in this section. And there's other group over here, well, I'm, we're, we're Team Sean. And they kind of sit themselves over here. And there's a whole other group, like, we were here back when Pastor Ron was here, and they kind of sit way over here. They, that guy founded this church, and they sit over here on the fringes. And then over here, well, Cody's so new, it'd just be him and his family, but Could you see his like wife going, you can do it, babe. Come on, we're going to build you up in this church. But just starting to cause real divisions in the church. Well, that's probably an overstatement of what it would look like for us today. But it does happen to a certain extent. Uh, You know, one thing that happens here, we actually don't tell people if I'm not preaching. Because they won't come if they hear somebody else is preaching. Well, Sean's my pastor. Well, I appreciate that. But all the pastors are preaching the words of Christ. That's what's important. So we don't even advertise it if I'm going to be gone. I just don't show up one Sunday. That's the way we handle that. I just don't show up. And somebody else is here and people walk in the door and like, oh man. But you're not here for the pastor. You're here for the Savior. The way this happened in another church that I was a part of years ago. It was actually the church where I was uh, brought to salvation in Jesus Christ. I was married in that church. Um, But shortly after that time, the pastor uh, was asked to leave the church. And the way that happened was this. He brought in a young pastor uh, to kind of help him out so that it wasn't just him by himself. He needed the extra help. Church was doing really well. Uh, And a group of people in the church decided that they liked the young pastor better than they liked the old pastor. And so what they did is they all got together and at a business meeting, They had enough people to vote the old pastor out and vote vote the new pastor in. They ended up dividing the church over which pastor they were following. Well, 
things don't always work out well when you do when you think them through your head you think this is the way it's going to work out well it didn't work out well for them the new young exciting pastor after receiving the vote to be the new pastor of the church declined and said why would I want to pastor this church I saw what you did to the last pastor I don't want that in my life man it set that church back but they were dividing over who was going to who was going to be the pastor who the pastor is is not what draws us together It's the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly uh, what Paul is going to get at here in verse 13. He says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any others. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul asks that important question, has Christ been divided? And I I love just how uh, succinct he is in this. Hey, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? No. You see, when we find these divisions, we return to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Has Christ been divided? Or as he goes into verse 17 there, uh, he starts talking about we preach the gospel. That's it. And we don't even do it cleverly. It's almost as if he's saying, I'm not even really that good at it. But if I was, it would kind of distract from the work of the cross. I don't want people to come to Christ because they like me. I want people to come to Christ because they like Jesus Christ. We don't want to void the work of Christ. If you come to Christ because of the the perfect pastor, the right guy preaching the message, when that guy struggles in his faith or when that guy has to leave because of illness or whatever happens in his life, he can't be in the ministry anymore, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about church anymore. My guy's gone. Your guy's not gone. Your guy is Jesus Christ and he's still here. The rallying call of the Apostle Paul was the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's going back to that gospel message. As Paul says later in this book, the gospel is this, Christ died for our sins and was buried and then raised up on the third day. That's the the simple message that we keep rallying to and that's how you kind of deal with these divisions. I love how he talks about baptism in this as well for a couple of reasons. One is a personal reason. Uh, I, I like how Paul is stumbling to remember who he baptized. I know I did, I, I baptized Gaius, I, I baptized Crispus, maybe the household of Stephanus, but I can't even remember who all I baptized. That's a real deal thing for pastors, by the way. We have baptized a couple hundred people, and sometimes people run up to me, remember when you did my baptism? I remember baptizing people, yes. Generically, in a sense, that does happen, yes. It's nothing personal against you. And it's an exciting, it's a powerful moment for you. That's why you remember it. That was your baptism, right? So you get excited about it. So Paul, I can kind of connect with Paul here. Like, yeah, I forgot things too. It's not because I don't love the people. But the purpose isn't for me to make a collection of names. These are the ones I baptize. These are my people. That's not the purpose of baptism. The purpose of baptism is that they would identify themselves with the work of Jesus Christ, Romans 6. Baptism, 
that you're buried in the, baptism, the waters of baptism just like Christ was buried. And then you resurrect to new life when you come up out of the waters of baptism just like Christ was resurrected. That's what baptism is about. And so again, it's all pointing back to the gospel. And this is important for this reason. There are some people that get really caught up on whether or not you've been baptized to determine whether or not you're saved. I love how Paul separates those things out. I wasn't sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the gospel. He, he separates those out, the gospel being separate from the actual baptism. The, the baptism just becomes one way that you're obedient to Christ. It becomes one way that you identify yourself with Christ. But it's the gospel itself that saves. It's not that moment of baptism. Well, Paul moves on now, kind of following through with this idea of the cleverness of speech, that he didn't come with cleverness of speech, which, by the way, he'll, he'll go back to this in chapter 2. In verse 1, he says, I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom Uh, I love that, that he just basically is really down on the way that he preaches. In verse 4, we weren't there with persuasive words of wisdom. He just keeps kind of going back to this idea that it's not the power of his preaching, it's the power of the gospel that saves lives. It's so important, I think, for us to remember that. Verse 18, though, he says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, he starts to talk about the foolishness of the message of the cross, the foolishness of the gospel, uh, which is kind of a, a weird way to deal with this idea of divisions. But what he's really showing is there is only one real division in the world. Here in verse 18, the only division is those who are perishing and those who are saved. And to those who are saved, they should not be dividing further. Those who are saved should be together rallying around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the way this should work. The only division, those who are perishing and those who are saved. And I love how just very practical he is in this. To those who are perishing, the gospel is foolishness, he says. And I think you guys can probably relate to that. Number one, because as you've shared with other people the things that you believe about Christianity, about Jesus, about God, some people just look at you like, you guys are crazy. You guys are just, you guys are foolish. I can't believe you believe all that stuff. Why would you believe those things? Uh, but I would say it this way too. Beyond that, that's how most of us were before we believed in Jesus Christ. That most people, when they thought about these things, it was foolishness to them until it wasn't. Until the day it clicked. Until the day it made sense. I was actually really blessed. The first time I heard the gospel, it just was real to me. The first time, and maybe I'd heard it before that and just, I was a kid, I wasn't paying that much attention, that happens sometimes. 
But as a teenager, when I first heard this, it just was true. The rest of my life has been understanding that truth more. But in that moment when I heard it, it was just true. It was like a switch went off in my brain. It was like alarm bells, like that thing you just heard, that's reality. But for some people, it takes a while for them to get to that point. But man, when they get to that point, it's the wisdom of God when they finally understand it, when that switch gets flipped in their brain. Well, for others, until that time, it's just foolishness. But Paul talks about how that foolishness is the only way that we're saved, that gospel message. And so here in verse 20, he kind of lists out a group of people, wise men, scribes, debaters, how these people might look at it as foolish. Uh, but could you imagine what it's going to be like? Someday they're going to stand before God and he's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? And the wise man's going to stand up to him and say, well, God, maybe you don't know how smarty I am. Like, I really know some stuff about this world. God, that's funny. Because all that stuff you know, each one of those things was intended to point you to me. And somehow, as smart as you are, you missed the obvious. And then the scribe is going to stand up. The scribe is going to say, God, I don't think you know how holy I am. I'm a very religious man. I'm a very good man. I've done all of this religious things. Certainly you're going to let me into your heaven. And God says, it seems to me you don't know how holy I am. If you think your holiness is going to persuade me in it. And then you have the great debaters of the age. The guys are going to walk in there. And I think there are probably people like this that think when they get to heaven, they'll, they'll convince God somehow that he should let them in. Well, let's have a, a discussion about this God. And at the end of it, somehow God's going to be like, wow, that was a really impressive argument. Come on in. It's not going to be like that at all. It's all going to go back to the gospel message. He says it like this. He says that the wisdom of God... It's in the wisdom of God that the world through its wisdom did not come to know Jesus. They only come to know Jesus through the foolishness of the message preached. And this goes back to, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. People were worshiping the great minds of their time. Paul says, the rallying point is not the preacher. The rallying point is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. He keeps kind of going back to it, hitting that point over and over and over again. I had this uh, online debate one time with a guy. Uh, he was not an evangelical Christian, but he was a Christian. He came from a more liturgical, traditional background. And he was basically telling me uh, why the evangelical church was, was, in his opinion, garbage. He just, uh, the, gar it's just the evangelical church is terrible. It's miserable. Uh, there's no truth there. It's just a waste of time. And he was kind of going through this argument where he said, well, look, here's this guy who became really famous as an evangelical pastor, and then he fell. He walked away from the faith. See, that's just evidence. And he would just name after name. He puts all these names up there. And so my first way of trying to persuade him back uh, was to say, well, look, for every one of those guys that stands up, becomes really famous and falls, there's a thousand guys who preach the gospel year in and year out and never get famous, but they're building the kingdom of God. Well, you just need to be more like us. We don't have superstars. I said, oh, what's your background? He says, I'm Lutheran. 
Wait, what? <laughs> you literally named your church after your superstar, Martin Luther. Don't tell me you don't have superstars. What was he saying? I am of Luther. He's missing that connection. He's missing that, that concept or that idea. And we find these silly things to kind of divide ourselves by. But it's really foolishness from the perspective of God. We have to keep rallying back to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, the truth of the matter is, one of the things we see that has kind of divided the church can be those denominational ties. Now, if you look at the church world as a whole, you see all these denominations out there, and people can get really, really focused in on their denomination. I am Baptist. I am Calvary Chapel. I am this. I am that. Now, those things in and of themselves, when it becomes an us versus them, that's a real problem. When a church says, you're not saved unless you're our brand of saved, now you have an issue. I would say that church has slipped into the occult. If you're not baptized, your baptism wasn't really real unless you were baptized in, in my particular type of church. That's a real issue. That's a struggle. We're not baptized in the name of a church. We're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's where our baptism is. We have to be careful of those things. We actually have a really unique thing going on in the city of Cheyenne, and that is that we have really pretty good unity amongst the churches. Uh, we really do. Those that actually believe the word, teach that salvation comes through Jesus Christ, we actually have pretty good unity. Uh, when I talk to other pastors, they talk about where it's, it's like a, a competition, like the churches are working against one another to try to get more people, and, and they kind of come to these competitions, and they almost get jealous of another church if it's successful. But we really don't have that in Cheyenne. We have a lot of support. One of the things that we have that makes my uh, friends in other states, um, uh, uh, I don't want to say jealous, but yeah, jealous of, of the ministries that we have in Cheyenne, uh, we have a group of pastors that meets every single Tuesday just for the purpose of prayer. And we pray for the city, we pray for our churches, we pray for the churches of the pastors that don't show up. But it's powerful to me, it's meaningful to see these guys pray. And, and we happen to believe, and maybe this is a little bit of pride, but we happen to believe that we've prayed some churches out of apostasy back into the truth. Now, we've seen some churches over the years where they just kind of had given up on the gospel, they've given up on scripture. One particular church had taken to no longer doing uh, preaching out of the scripture, but they were taking preaching from all kinds of different religions and bringing it in, and they were doing Indian chants and all these kinds of things. But when that pastor left, we started praying that God would bring in an evangelical pastor. They've now had two evangelical pastors. And we take credit for that, and we know God did the work, but we asked him to. We prayed that church back into existence. We prayed that church back into the kingdom. There's a number of churches in town that we've been praying, and when their pastors come to town, we get excited. We go meet those guys, and we say, hey, just so you know, we've been praying for you before we ever knew who you were. We want to see your ministry succeed here in the city of Cheyenne. We're not about building up just one individual church. We want to build the kingdom of God in the city of Cheyenne. We want to see the gospel go out and spread out. It's really kind of fun. Another thing I really enjoy doing is I enjoy visiting other churches. So when I take a Sunday off here, I like to go visit another church in town. And uh, I do that for two reasons. One is uh, a very selfish reason, and that is if I come to church on Sunday, uh, people immediately want me to do things for them. And so, and that's also built in me, by the way. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to check on all the ministries. I'm going to do all these things. It's not really a day off. 
Just because I'm not preaching doesn't mean I'm not working, right? So part of it is I have to kind of get away to just enjoy going to church and have somebody else minister to me. But the second part of it, one of the things I love is when I go to another church, I'll often see people that used to attend church here. And then that first moment where it's like kind of the deer in the headlights look when they see me, they're like, what is he doing here? And then I go up to him and I'm like, oh my goodness, I am so glad that you found this wonderful church. I love this church. I love this pastor. I pray with this pastor. I pray for this church. But just to encourage them, this understanding that they would recognize that, hey, we don't think you left God. You just found a place that ministered better to you. That's wonderful. That's exciting. You have great fellowship there. We get excited about those things. Again, because we have this vision, this idea that the rallying point isn't our individual denominations. It isn't the buildings we meet in. It's the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's the rallying point. He's the one that prevents division in the body if we can all focus in on that ministry and on that work. Well, Paul's going to make it even more personal than that here in verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord and so Paul now begins to almost uh, bring uh, belittling words to the people of the church of Corinth he says consider yourselves not many of you are all that wise you're not really that mighty you're not really that smart you're not really that noble he basically chose you foolish people so that he can shame the wise and the strong, those who think that they can be saved in their own power and their own wisdom and their own merits. He proves through your weakness that it's the power of God that saves. And he even tells us why he does this. He did this for a very specific reason. Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. And it really hits at the heart of the division here. The heart of the division is this pride within us where we want to boast about our guy. We want to be part of the team, of the winning team. And so we kind of have these little things that we do in churches where we start to kind of get a little bit braggy about our pastor or our church or our ministry. And these are the things that we're doing. We get so excited about those things. And you should be excited about them, but it shouldn't lead you to boast in your church it should be a reminder of the power of God who's worked in your church so that no man would boast. And that's what's happening there. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. And I am of Christ. They're just boasting about who baptized them, who their favorite preacher is. They're building teams around the wrong concept, the wrong idea. But we build our teams around the person and the work of Jesus Christ so that no man may boast. And then verse 31, he ultimately says, if you're going to boast at all, boast in the Lord Jesus Christ because again it wasn't Paul who was crucified for you you weren't baptized in the name of the apostle Paul he tells us in fact that it all goes back to Jesus here in verse 30 
by his doing, speaking of God, you are in Christ Jesus. So that you're only in Christ, not because you were so smart or so worthy, but because God put you in Christ Jesus. He did the work. He's the one that we brag about. And for Jesus, he became to us wisdom. Jesus became to us righteousness. Jesus became to us sanctification. Jesus became to us redemption. All of these things, whether it's the wisdom of God, the righteousness that we have, our sanctification, our redemption, each of these things were given to us by Jesus. So the only person we can brag about is the God who gave us these things. The only ones we can brag about is Jesus Christ. That's all we can brag about. And so we look at this list here, the wisdom of God, righteousness is one. I think we have to, to really understand the way that worked in our life. Each one of us was separated from God because of our sins. So when Jesus dies on the cross, we're told that the sins of the world were placed on him. He who was righteous was put to death so that our sins could be cleansed. But what's cool about this, it says now God doesn't see us as sinful. He sees us as being as righteous as his son, Jesus Christ. That the righteousness of Jesus is applied to our account. So God sees you now as being as righteous as his son. Not because you did anything, but because Jesus lived righteously and you get credit for that. That's what we brag about. We brag about Jesus. Sanctification. We truly are in a special place. We've been sanctified, which means we've been set apart for God's exclusive use. And we can brag about that, but it's not like God did an interview. He didn't go through this interview process where a bunch of people showed up and like, yes, I'd like to uh, interview for the uh, special purpose of God. Oh, well, tell me about your credentials. How good are you? How smart are you? How strong are you? And he kind of sifts through the people of the world and we're the cream of the crop. We came up to the top. We deserve to be here. We've been used by God because we're so great. You know, the fact that God can use people like us to accomplish his work shows the power of God, not the power of us. He's the mighty one. He's the powerful one. And then redemption. The fact is we were in slavery to sin. He bought us out. He's the one who paid the price to get us out of sin. That's why we don't boast in ourselves we boast in Jesus Christ. And if we're spending all our time boasting about what Christ has done for us, we won't be dividing about what everybody else has done for us. We'll all be centered on the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to kind of go on with this for the next three chapters in various different ways, kind of bringing different arguments about how we can avoid the, the divisions that happen in the church. But it is, it's powerful and it's important for us. Now, uh, because we're starting a new book, I want to tell you what your homework assignment is. This has been the homework assignment for a couple of years, but I don't always say it to you, but it's a new book. I want to remind you this is your homework assignment. So homework assignment number one, you've now heard a sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Your assignment is sometime in the next week, I want you to have a conversation with somebody about this particular chapter. It could be somebody that was at church with you. It could be a family member. It could be your kids. If you have kids, uh, they sometimes will be able to have conversations along these things as well. If they're in the youth group tonight, they're going through 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tonight as well. So you can have a conversation with them. Um, it could be a coworker, somebody that you just run across in town. But just have a simple conversation with them about the things that you've learned here. And this is the way these conversations work for me. I, I've boiled it down to two questions. Question number one. 
What is God saying to you in his word? Question number two, what are you going to do about it? What did you hear in the word? How is it going to make your life any different? How are you going to react to what you heard in the word? So you have that simple conversation with somebody. Now, hopefully, when you ask that question, they're willing to answer it. But if they're not, that's just the way it goes. You've at least tried to have a conversation with somebody. Also, the other thing that hopefully will happen is they'll give you a chance to tell them what you've heard in the Word. But you should be approaching the Word with this idea that I want to hear from God today. What is it that God wants to say to me in His Word so that I can begin to live like He wants me to live? Homework assignment number two every week. Homework assignment number two. I want you to read the next chapter. Chapter two, it's 16 verses. It's real short. It'll take you less than two minutes. Just read through chapter two every single day next week. Just read through it. But as you start to read through that chapter, the Word of God and the Spirit of God will begin to work these things in your heart. And He'll begin to prepare you through the Word. And you'll find that you can understand this thing way better than you think you can. You read it the first time and you're like, wow, what was that? I, there was one really cool verse in there. I kind of liked that. I did not understand the rest of it. Then you read it a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And by the time you get to the seventh time that you've read that that week, it starts to come alive to you. It starts to make sense to you. That's really kind of a powerful thing. One of the neat things that happens as you do that, you'll then come to church, I'll start preaching, and you'll be like, I saw that myself. Oh, I saw that one myself too. The whole idea though is I want you to understand that you're responsible for your own faith. It's time for us to move beyond being spoon-fed to feeding ourselves the Word of God. That's what we want to see in the life of a believer, that there would be that kind of spiritual growth that happens there. You're now invested in that process. You're ingesting the word and you're figuring these things out. And some of the things maybe you won't understand, but then you'll come here and you'll hear a sermon and maybe I'll, I'll address those things in the sermon. But if not, feel free. Ask Pastor Tom all the questions you want about a passage. Tom at calvarychapelcheyenne.org. Just send him emails, phone calls, whatever you need to do. Just ask Tom. He has all the answers to those things, right? But ask the questions if you don't understand something. Don't just leave it. I don't understand that. Pursue those things. Try to find those answers to those questions. That's how you grow in your faith. Then, this is the hard one. This is the one that this is like the, the super challenge for those that really want to invest in these things, right? If you really want to invest in, I would say find one verse in there that you really want to meditate on during the week or even go to the point of memorizing that verse. You're beginning to plant the Word of God in your heart so the Spirit of God can reach into the recesses of your heart and bring it out at the right time, that it can be the, the right word spoken into somebody else's life or the right word to encourage you. How's it going, Tom? Tom was hiding out there in the overflow. He heard me talking about him. There he is. If you didn't recognize him, that's the guy you ask all the questions of right there. Uh, but again, uh, the whole idea, though, is to kind of move into this place where we're really growing in our faith by investing in it personally. You're going to find that there's some real power in the Word of God, and it's really going to bring some changes in your life. And what will happen for me, the important part for me in this is, it's no longer about what I do here. It's about what you do with what you hear. That you become the priests in the seats who go out and minister to the world, the pastors in the pews who go out and, and expand the gospel way beyond the walls of this church by just the simple things that you learned in the Word that you can have a really easy conversation with somebody about. 
It might be a two-minute conversation and they're done with you, but it might lead into a greater conversation. And that can be with other believers, but you can also find it's actually powerful to speak with uh, unbelievers. But every once in a while, just a little conversation, like, hey, you know, uh, you want to hear something that I found really cool this weekend? I I was reading through the Bible and I saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I was just blown away by this concept. Did you know that the Apostle Paul, right there in Scripture, says... I'm really not all that clever. (laughs) And they'd be like, what? Yeah, Paul's whole point is, he's no hero. Jesus is the hero. Now you've had a gospel conversation with somebody. You've planted just a little seed in their heart. It might begin to grow. It might lead to their salvation. That's how the gospel grows. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful for your word. Lord, I'm thankful that we really have had good unity in our church over the years. I truly believe that's wrapped around the idea uh, that we make the word so important, that we keep going back to the person and the work of Jesus Christ because your word keeps going back to the person and the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I would pray that you would help us, uh, that we would be able to Uh, put these things into practice, that when we see divisions in our household, divisions in our church, divisions with other believers, we would just constantly go back to that rallying point of Jesus and Him crucified. That we'd keep reminding ourselves that the gospel is what unites us and these other things, these side issues, should never divide the body of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I do pray as well that for some people, Uh, these words would be growing them in their faith, uh, that they would be reminded of these words at just the right time, the right opportunity, that they can apply them in their life. And for some people, Lord, I I don't know. For some people, maybe this is the planting of the seed of the gospel in their heart. That really, for the first time, it's just starting to click in their brain that it all is about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he raised up on the third day. Father, I pray that you would continue to water those seeds and that some of those would come to full harvest. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.